Hello everyone, it's May 16th, 2023. This week we're going to see what we can see regarding the secretive Chinese space plane. We don't know the actual name of the spacecraft, but we do know it had been making some interesting maneuvers on orbit and has recently landed. What more is there to say about it? Let's find out. And liftoff! And we've got the tower. Welcome to episode 409 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. And I'm Dennis. Ben's uh, taking the day off. He's not mm. feeling too well. Uh, but he's here in spirit and also just listening. <laughs> yeah, so he is providing he is providing support. So vast space. I just kind of wanted to mention that briefly. Uh, mm. Why not talk about vast because uh, they're in the news again. Uh, after the, the first time was because uh, the news was that this is a company that wants to build a rotating space station. But now they have a more definite plan or a more, uh, I guess, like a more modest first step which is just to put a single module up and they're going to be doing it with hopefully a starship no that's that's even a, it's even more modest it's a falcon 9 yeah maybe their super ambitious stuff like might count on starships although maybe not it also seems like they want to chain together a whole bunch of little ones but i do remember that it said uh, it would be all private companies like nasa wouldn't be involved in any way which is kind of cool yeah yeah it's kind of like yeah like uh inspiration four or or like yeah like like inspiration four but setting up a space station for a company so truly truly private but yeah but this is a company that apparently uh see founded by jed mccaleb i don't know if you ever mentioned it before but uh, this is a a billionaire who is behind three large crypto firms according to space dot com uh, such as bitcoin exchange and mount gox which mount gox is probably not a not something you want mentioned with your name but yeah some people really made out from crypto so i guess interesting that that's where he wants to put at least some of his money towards but yeah <laughs> yeah and then there's another company that i hadn't heard of that uh i guess made an announcement several years ago called orbital assembly corporation mm. uh and they have a concept called a Voyager Station, which actually is a rotating station. I suppose this is a modest one. I don't know much about it, but they want to launch this as well in 2025. Um, that doesn't seem very realistic. I mean, I don't know how realistic it is to launch a private space station, period. Um, mm. Although I certainly think that it can be done. But when you're, you know, a, a crypto billionaire, you probably aren't familiar with just how technically challenging that will be. So there's a lot of stuff that you're not prepared for. And I don't know, it seems like it might be a bit of a, these companies might get a little bit mired down in uh, the real challenges here, but a rotating space station in 2025, that sounds cool. And I see like a concept, I see some concept art here. It looks kind of like a giant bicycle wheel. That's kind of what it looks like. Well, yeah, orbital sciences. I mean, I, sorry, orbital assembly corporation. Yes, that's who I meant. <laughs> not orbital sciences. Yeah. Too many orbital things. But yeah, they, they, they got a podcast that I actually listened to, which is pretty cool because they bring on guests and they just talk about like things that are like related to, you know, space habitats and what it would take to build a space station. So even if their station is something that, you know, there's, I wouldn't expect to fly anytime soon, given how ambitious it is, ambitious it is. but that's what I think is really cool about VAST and SpaceX's this this collaboration, which they, the name of the mission is VAST-1 and the name of the station is Haven-1. And it's it's something though that's eminently uh, doable. It's just really can they build a uh, a capsule that for humans can live in, you know, for some period of time. And if they can, then right, you launch that up on a Falcon Nine, and once it's happily in orbit, uh, they 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 build it with a, a Crew Dragon compatible uh, docking 
uh, port, and then you go and launch your crew dragon with your your vast one crew, and then they go and I guess you know rendezvous dock and make that happen. Cool vision of the not so distant future. I mean, it's a, a modest one, but yeah, a private space station, just people going up to a space station. <laughs> I don't know. That's kind of neat, but not NASA astronauts. But not NASA astronauts. I guess it's almost too bad that Polaris Dawn, right? They're they're testing. A um like Jared Isaacman's private missions. I, I just had a thought like they're testing, you know, doing a kind of a, a spacewalk among you know commercial people. But if 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 they had instead of then going to, I think their next missions then would all be Starship related. But if they had one like before 2025, that was just uh, two crew dragons. I don't know, maybe not docking, but still doing rendezvous and proximity operations together. Like just purely in the private sector, I think that would be pretty cool and a nice setup to like vast trying to do this with the station you know yeah so with any luck we'll be talking about them uh and seeing some actual progress being made and shout out to andy z for uh emailing this to us and uh putting it on my uh horizon at least initially So, China's space plane makes maneuvers. Well, it has since landed, actually, so I guess that was the last maneuver. <laughs> but uh, but we have a, a little breakdown of uh, what this is all meant. So, this is a space plane that launched back in August of 2022. So, it's been up there for a while, for 276 days, which is not a record for a space plane, but that's still pretty respectable. The previous mission was just four days, right? So and now it's back in 2018. So we're looking at some real strides having been made here. But yeah, I guess we'll get into ex- exactly what this mysterious space plane has been doing. This very X-37B-like space plane. Yeah, right. Where, where the idea was we could tell it was a space plane because you could see uh, in the fairing, I guess they had like space to accommodate the wings of it. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. I think I remember us talking about that. Yeah. So these maneuvers have been tracked by a company that we'll be mentioning shortly, but how much can be visually seen? I don't know, but can we see that it actually is a space plane? So uh, Ben, who's uh, acting producer of this episode, uh, <laughs> just told us that, uh, yeah, evidently we can confirm now that it has landed horizontally, which is a pretty good indicator that you're talking about a space plane. And it landed on May 8th, sometime just after midnight, um, like within two minutes, they were able to get that landing down. So this was something that I guess, I, I don't know how news gets out about these things. I honestly don't know, like mm-hmm. when it comes to China, I don't know what's made public, what's not, what's due to, you know, some kind of just, you know, what we're watching with our own spy satellites or whatever. Mm-hmm. But uh, it has been confirmed to have landed at the Lopnor military base, which is in Xinjiang. Uh, so yeah, that's what we know. Um, but uh, I guess what else do we know? So the observations that were taken of the activities on orbit, we have some information on that. So uh, there was an unknown object that was released by the space plane, and it is a sub-satellite. So this is basically like we've seen this with the X-37B, right? You do proximity operations by like, you know, releasing your own little mm-hmm. thing that you're going to play with. <laughs> That's kind of how yeah. I think about it. That's what Sally Ride was doing on on her mission. They had a little... Sp- Spaso one satellite. They released like two commercial satellites and then they released this other one that was specifically just for the shuttle to kind of maneuver around and, you know, test that out. So, so I guess, yeah, this is a long uh, history of doing this. Um, yeah. Going all the way back to, you know, 
82, 81, 82, whenever that was, <laughs> STS-7. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. If you, go, if you go to non-space planes, it goes back even further. <laughs> so the NORAD ID, just uh, so I guess people can know for your own edification, it, it was 54218 and the uh, Coast Bar ID 2022-093J. Uh, so it was nicknamed Object J. And it was identified by the U.S. Space Force on October 31st of last year. So now we get into the data by Leo Lab, and uh, we've probably mentioned them a couple of times. Mm. Isn't this a private company that basically collects observations on orbit and works mm. with the U.S. military and whoever else? Uh, yeah. yeah, they got ground stations all over the planet. It's pretty impressive. Yeah, so it's a private phased array radar company, and it seems that they've used this space plane to prove their capabilities. So I guess this was like the first real test of their capabilities. It seems that, yeah, this specific Chinese space plane is kind of how they proved in the field that they can do what they're doing, you know, that, that they have a the ability to, I guess, monitor objects at a certain distance, perhaps, or a certain size. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know the details of uh, what the capabilities are. But it seemed like this was the real, you know, defining moment for them. So ten radars in six at six different sites around the world. Yeah, tracking objects and you know, detecting maneuvers and characterization capabilities is a little trickier than just like you know, I see an object on orbit, right? Because it's got all these. What you're really doing is looking at plots of orbital parameters and being able to make inferences based on it. So it's it's kind of weird, but like interesting mm -hmm. in that regard. So yeah, so the Chinese space plane had a few different periods of that you can kind of like split up its mission so far, or actually not its mission so far because it did land, but you could split up its mission into, so if it released this object back in, uh, or at least it was identified in October, and so then maybe uh, about a month or so uh, later in November, uh, then through the end of last year, there were uh, changes that were noted where both of the, uh, both the space plane and the subsatellite, Object J, uh, kind of moved in unison, and so it's evidently been interpreted as either formation flying or docking, including a possible uh, docking event on uh, November 25th to 26th, so uh, American Thanksgiving, and um, that's pretty cool <laughs> to think about. And then there was a second possible docking on January 10th, so uh, you know, a month and change uh, month and a half later. And then, you know, still going strong, uh, you go another month uh, into February, and from February 20th to March 29th, there were additional proximity operations. And Leo Labs noted an apparent, quote, forced separation event. What is a forced separation event? Is that, that like your, uh, your pinball mechanism, you know, <laughs> shooting the thing out? Or <laughs> I don't know. I couldn't find any more information on what that meant. Um, that's a good question. And I'm assuming that those were very specifically, like intentionally chosen words, forced separation. But uh, yeah. makes it sound as though like the object that it was uh, docked to was meant to not cooperate. <laughs> And so maybe that's what that means. I don't know. I'm, I'm looking, and uh, if you just Google force separation and satellite, you get a whole bunch of unfortunate uh, hits on Google. But uh, I did find this paper on uh, NTRS, right? NASA, NASA Technical Report Server. And they do talk about two spacecraft that are initially joined and rotating, and then after an initial force separation, each tethered mass follows now dominant external forces while systems orbital centers maintain. So it seemed, so at least in this context, a force separation was a spacecraft basically, or these two spacecraft moving apart from each other 
I guess, due to centripetal forces. Um, ben Ben re reads that as a powered separation, which is to say that, you know, it was not just passively released, I guess, and just kind of actively released, which which is consistent with, you know, angular momentum kind of using that to fling something out, which is also consistent with just pushing pushing it out like a spring mechanism or something. Right. So in other words, not just letting them drift apart as they naturally would. That makes sense. And then apparently that separation was followed by a re-rendezvous in formation flying. So just a lot of, you know, maneuvering and testing exactly that. You know, can we maneuver around an object, uh, dock with it and undock? do whatever. Uh, this all sounds like stuff that, you know, I believe the X-37B has done in the past. So there's just a lot of parallels there, which yeah. we'll be getting to, I suppose, shortly. Yeah, this is, this is, yeah, this is just, you know, maturing your space snooping and spying capabilities. Mm -hmm. And so we have been doing it since the 80s. You know, Russia, I'm not quite sure about the history of the Soviet Union, but I know Russia has been doing it certainly in the 2010s and even <laughs> up to the present time. And this sounds like the space plane is a big way for China to mature out those uh, capabilities as well, just to kind of show that they're, if other nations can do it, we can do it too. But yeah, but it, it, that makes sense too, that like if, if, if it was just passively releasing the, the object or the object J and then doing rendezvous and proximity operations, what if you give it a little bit of oomph? So now <laughs> it's moving away from you. Are you still able to rendezvous and catch up to it and stay, you know, keep pace with it, et cetera? Yeah, and so the target object um, or object J, uh, it was seen to be maneuvering on its own. So yeah, this is something that can move on its own, uh, and I think that it, that probably helps to that end. You know, it's mm. I mean I kind of almost see it as a a weird little like staged cat and mouse game kind of. <laughs> um, <laughs> at least that's how I like to imagine it. Uh, but yeah, this is not a static docking target. This is something that can actually move. You know, like move and change changes orbit to some degree. I would imagine. I don't know. It would have to be since this is a payload pretty small but so we're maybe looking at something kind of like a cubesat ish probably a little bit bigger than than that but mm. maybe not a whole lot just capable of making maneuvers and so forth i would like to know more about what that object is but yeah uh, i would love to see what yeah, yeah what object j looks like and just know a little more about how the space plane is 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 docking with it and then releasing it it's multiple times mm -hmm. yeah and um it's important to keep the correct mindset as well, when thinking about China's space plane program, Space News has a great statement from Brian Whedon, who is the director of program planning, program planning for the Secure World Foundation. And so I'm just going to read these uh, quotes from the article and from Brian Whedon. Uh, Based on what we do know, it seems like the Chinese and American space plane programs are being used in very similar fashions, primarily as test beds for new technologies and capability demonstrations. Uh, when the X-37B started flying, it generated a lot of concern from the Chinese about the potential for it to be used as a weapon. Likewise, I expect that these latest reports on the Chinese space plane are likely to cause a lot of concern in the U.S., despite it being pretty similar capabilities to the U.S., or that the U.S. is also developing. And so, again, just kind of, you know, like I mentioned earlier, it really is, you know, just a nation wanting to prove out these capabilities and... You know, when it comes to nations that are vying for, you know, power and control <laughs> uh, on the, the world stage, uh, you know, your your enemy proving out a technology that you already have, you know, you don't like that. <laughs> and it yeah. just works both ways. <laughs> so this is what's happening here. 
Yeah, I mean, I I think we're looking at basically it's just two nations doing pretty much the exact same thing, um, mm-hmm. being equally suspicious because they know that that's what they're doing. You know what I mean? It's it, I don't think there's anything, uh, yeah, mysterious there's nothing there. Uniquely, yeah, nothing uniquely nefarious about this space plane program. I'm quite the contrary. We when we have the X-37B up there, I mean, just from a technological point of view, I mean, X-37B is awesome, and similarly, the space plane is pretty incredible what it's doing although unfortunately unlike the x-37b we don't get to see it which is tragic. Yeah. oh yeah and just a little coda to all this uh meanwhile kind of you know uh, uh russia is also uh has a spacecraft that's been doing some uh rendezvous and proximity operations as well and so um they've had a bunch in the last few years that they had sent up but this most recent one uh we'd seen uh jonathan mcdowell um had a source it sounded like who'd uh, turned them on to Cosmos 2562. And so this is a uh, unknown, you know, exactly what it is, a satellite, a classified payload that was launched uh, in October of last year. So one month after the Chinese uh, space plane was launched. Evidently, uh, more recently, the Resurs P3, a retired uh, remote sensing satellite called the Resurs P uh, number three, had evidently uh, changed its orbit to go and match uh, where the one that Cosmos 2562 uh, had been launched to. And so since then, there's kind of been a, a dance between the two where they're clearly doing uh, rendezvous and proximity ops themselves. And so whether you have something that you know is a little more sophisticated and fancy as a space plane deplo- deploying its own sub-satellite and doing maneuvers with it, um, on the other hand, you could just have, you know, we've got a lot of space junk up there, and so <laughs> have one of your retired satellites serve as the target. And you can interact with it that way to still try to prove out uh, what you're capable of. Yeah, so I guess that's the current state of space planes. <laughs> yep, space planes and space space snoopers. So let's just do uh, two short suites this week. Uh, Dennis, what is the first? Plutonium depletion. NASA works with the U.S. Department of Energy to obtain the plutonium-238 that it uses to make radioisotope thermoelectric generators. Production is intended to be increased to 1.5 kilograms per year, up from 400 grams per year, after Oak Ridge National Laboratory restarted regular production in 2019. Last year's decadal survey recommended a Uranus mission to be launched in 2031 or 2032 on a 13-year trajectory. However, a radioisotope power systems executive at NASA says the current production targets can't support the requirements of three next-gen RTGs included in the Uranus mission design until the second half of the decade. Other missions hoping for plutonium are Dragonfly, headed to Titan, NASA's Rosalind Franklin contribution, and the next New Frontiers mission. Next up, ULA prepares for more tests. According to a tweet from ULA CEO Tori Bruno, the Vulcan Centaur rocket will resume testing of its tanks. Testing has been paused following a test anomaly in March, which resulted in an explosion at the Marshall Space Flight Center test facility. Investigation into the cause of the anomaly has not yet been completed. Nevertheless, a Vulcan rocket is currently at Slick 41 and will undergo a full launch rehearsal and a main engine firing test next week. If these tests are successful, a first orbital test flight can be expected later this summer so pretty soon hopefully <laughs> all right so let's move right along then to uh this week in spaceflight history uh we have three winners um Cy Kyle and then two other winners who get bonus points uncle willie and hydrak and the clue was pass the baton which at the time i couldn't figure that out this is actually a really 
I'm surprised that we only got three winners here because this is a pretty obvious clue now that I know what the event is. Uh, so I guess take it away, Dennis, and tell us what that event is. <laughs> yeah, involve, it, yeah so, so these were still good guesses that um, other people uh, like Psy Kyle uh, and, and, and Henry had. But when I'm talking about passing the baton, I'm talking about passing a big physical baton-looking thing in space. Yeah, it's and literally. So, <laughs> and, and it literally being passed. So that's why uh, this one was uh, so on the nose that it wasn't meant to be anything that was like you know it's not metaphorical passing the baton it is the literal mm. passing of a baton like thing so anyway but the uh the event ultimately began i guess you could say on may 16th 2011 with the launch of sts-134 and so this was the second to last space shuttle mission um it was an endeavor flight it had my current state uh, my current senator mark kelly was the commander and uh which i always think is kind of funny to think about but um yeah and and uh it had uh two big payloads on board uh the uh, express logistics carrier 3 as well as uh ams2 which was the um alpha magnetic spectrometer oh yeah two there we go so so those were the two payloads and i feel like we talked about ams2 um on the show a couple of years ago but mm -hmm. uh those are not actually the uh what's really related to the clue and even though they are you could talk about they could get their own twist if but this one specifically i'm going to be focusing on uh the final spacewalk and what baton was being passed at that point and uh, before I go on, just a, a fun fact, one of the uh, main engines, uh, 2059, that was on uh, this uh, particular mission, will be flying on Artemis 2, right? The, the next uh, Artemis mission, the crewed one. So that's cool. Uh, one of the other Artemis 2 uh, engines flew on uh, some other flight, and the other two are actually new. So it's going to be 50-50 between uh, uh, previously flown and brand new engines, which is pretty sweet. And so this was, uh, you know... Being uh, STS-134, the penultimate mission, it was very much an ISS assembly mission. And so while there were different classifications of them, depending on whether you were a utilization flight or a logistics flight, like what kind of stuff were you bringing up, um, and a lot of them had designations where you would have a ISS assembly mission that had A in it if it was American, R for Russian, E for European, and J for Japanese, and sometimes more than one of those letters for, you know, joint missions. But uh, this was specifically ULF-6, so this was a utilization and logistics flight, and the sixth uh, one of that, of those. And if you go to the, the press kit, like I already alluded to, right? I had these two payloads I'm not going to talk about. Uh, in the press kit, there's 19 mission objectives, whereas this week's event is for objective 17 out of 19. So there's quite a few beforehand uh, that I'm glossing over. And so I'm finally beating around the bush all this time. What is that giant baton? It is, of course, the OB OBSS. I always want to say the OBS, kind of like I say ohms, but it's yeah, yeah. the OBSS, Orbiter Boom Sensor System. This, right, is something that was built uh, post-Columbia uh, disaster in 2003. And the idea being that um, you can just envision, right, I keep saying it's like a baton, right, envision a cannon arm that doesn't have any joints that can articulate. And so it's a 50-foot long tube. And on the one end, you've got a grapple fixture that the uh, shuttle uh, RMS can grab. And on the other end, you've got three sensors. And so by adding a 50 feet reach with sensors uh, at the end, you're able to actually go and inspect from orbit the uh, belly of the orbiter as well as, you know, important parts like the, the leading uh, uh, reinforced carbon carbon on the wings or the nose cone, etc. And so that was the idea for adding this uh, OBSS 
to these missions uh, after 2003, um, once they had the return to flight mission, uh, parts one and part two, because the first return to flight didn't go uh, perfectly nominally at all. I'd always known about the OBSS uh, having these sensors, but what are these sensors themselves? <laughs> and there's a gorgeous image, sorry, a gorgeous image that I was able to find uh, from Sandia's uh, website, Sandia Laboratories. And, and basically, the three of them, uh, two of them are for scanning, and one of them is for basically follow-up observations. And so um, there's a laser dynamic range imager, which is the Sandia instrument. And it's basically a, a LADAR or light detection and ranging um, a laser coupled with a, uh, a camera. And so you basically can get uh, 2D information. You, know, you, you get your picture of what's going on, but you also, by using the LADAR, get the third dimension. And so you get not only like, you know, your... Uh, your 2D spatial dimension, but also that third dimension, uh, whether things are protruding or whether there's holes or gaps where there shouldn't be in the tiles or the reinforced carbon, carbon, etc. And so these would typically, you know, just capture hours, like three hours of video on some of the missions um, and by scanning uh, the, the parts of the shuttle to make sure that there were no, there was no damage on ascent, which right, uh, is what ultimately doomed the uh, Columbia crew, uh, that they had some damage to the uh, the leading wing. So with each of these missions, were, like, were they meant to take three hours of video? Was that just like standard procedure? I think so. Um, okay. it, it, I got the sense that it wasn't like uh, done like for particularly... Yeah, that wasn't like particularly, uh, you know, some mission just had to really, really look more carefully and more uh, thoroughly than other ones. Is that uh, maybe if it wasn't always three hours, but it was order of magnitude hours, which kind of makes sense, I think, when you, you know, how long you're slowly moving this, um, this instrument over, the, you know, even when you're scanning, like, let's say parts of the belly, that's, you have to then move it very differently to be able to scan parts of the wings, or maybe, I think, they potentially would look at maybe the thermal blankets in the back. I don't know if they would do that or not. But like, there, there, there's just there's just a lot of shuttle for you to scan, and so it taken a handful of hours. Um, I could I could see that being realistic. I suppose so. It's it's probably a more complex operation than I realize, and plus it's it's a big shuttle, <laughs> mm-hmm. and in order to get the kind of information that you want, you probably need to look closely, and it's going to take a while to kind of you know scan the whole underside. So. Mm-hmm. I suppose that makes sense. But I mean, I initially thought like, oh, they just need to like see a spot where they can't see. And, you know, they just need to get a camera, like, ah. you know, a little view under there and go, okay, we're good. And then that would be it. Yeah. Yeah. The, these two that I said were like the scanners. These these were still like, you know, good resolution and very thorough scannings um, that they were doing. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Um, yeah. And, 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 and in particular, I'm going off a, a, a kind of a news release from Sandia National Laboratories where they... Uh, basically talked about on flight day two of a uh, a mission that they actually don't specify, um, just because they assume it's, it was an Atlantis mission in September of 2006. So I'm not going to bother looking that up. That's not important. Mm-hmm. But but they do just kind of casually state that, you know, on flight day two, the LDRI, which is the Laser Dynamic Range Imager. I don't know if I actually even said that name. <laughs> That's the name of this one, the uh, LDRI. And so um, the LDRI sensor is used in a series of multiple pass scans of the leading edges, both wings of the shuttle and the nose cap. Approximately three hours of video is acquired. And the operation is repeated just before the shuttle returns to Earth in case it was impacted by micrometeorites or space debris while on orbit. You, you don't want to lose a, a shuttle, especially when you have, unfortunately, right, Columbia was free-flying, so they were, you know, it, it didn't really have a, a contingency 
uh, there for them. But it, it, it would be beyond tragic if you just missed damage that ended up dooming another tr shuttle when you had them docked at the ISS and they could have used it as a safe haven for a follow-up shuttle to come and grab them, you know, in the future. And so that would have been extra tragic. So I guess that's why you, you, you not only had scanning happening uh, early in the mission, but then before it would dock, they would do the rendezvous and pitch maneuver, right, where they do the 360, you know, pirouette uh, and pitch. And then they would uh, also do uh, a scan uh, before uh, departing um, or before deorbiting, too. And so just you want to be safe when there's, you know. Uh, in this case, five to seven lives on board. So, but even so, this still was this was uh, uh, more about just kind of scanning and getting like and, and noticing whether anything seemed uh, off and became an area of interest uh, that you would then have follow up. Uh, the second sensor, uh, the other scanner, is called the intensified television camera, and I couldn't find anything uh, about it uh, by googling. Uh, I'm sure if I, you know had more time or spent more time doing it, uh, I would have been able to maybe find something. Um, there, there is one document that sounds perfect that like basically lists the three sensors on uh, NTRS, um, but uh, unfortunately there's no PDF that I could download from there. And the only thing I could find about, you know, intensified television cameras is then brought up in the context of uh, guider cameras for telescopes. And basically, it sounds like it's just a type of television camera, though, that has an adjusted um, exposure rate and, you know, uh, sensor capability where it can pick out fainter things. Like you can detect or you can expose for longer times per frame and be able to pick out fainter uh, objects without, you know, saturating and destroying your detector. And so that was that's the idea behind that one to basically take pictures. And so, yeah, and, and, and thank you, Ben, just uh, uh, commenting that, unbeknownst to me, but this sounds a lot like the setup of uh, essentially what uh, night vision cameras are, uh, non-infrared ones, ones where you're just picking out low levels of light. And so that, I mean, totally makes sense, because I, I think if I've ever seen some of the pictures that are taken from this, it just really does look like a, you know, night vision imaging of the underbelly of the shuttle. So thank you, Ben. And so the idea, though, is that these two sensors, you know, get you kind of a more uh, big picture view and identify areas of interest. And uh, they're both mounted on a, a pan and tilt unit. And so you can kind of have them be able to go and scan everything nice and good. And then uh, if you do have areas of interest where it looks like there might be some significant damage or damage that's at least worth looking at more carefully, then you use the third sensor, which is the laser camera system or LCS. And that one is on a stationary bracket, I guess, further uh, up the arm, I mean, just, you know, a matter of feet from the edge, uh, from the uh, pan and tilt unit. And uh, yeah, basically just by using uh, uh, lasers, they can give you the height, width, and depth of any damage that you end up having um, just by bouncing the light off there and uh, recording uh, how it comes back to you. And so that's that's what the OBSS uh, in, in gory detail gets you. So what's this past the baton? Well, the idea is that they uh, had a bunch of EVAs related to uh, AMS-2 and the uh, uh, Express Logistics Carrier. Uh, and then uh, finally, Mike Fink and Greg Chamatoff, or sorry, Greg Chamatoff, uh, were going to do the fourth and final EVA of this mission. And it was literally passing this OBSS baton from the uh, shuttle RMS to the space station RMS. And the idea was that it was going to be stowed onto the space station, the ISS, and serve as a contingency extension to uh, the space station RMS, which is Canada Arm 2, and basically adding an extra 50 feet of reach, which could be useful like it was once for a 
previous Twisif, um, the Scott Parzinski EVA, where he had to use uh, some little twisty ties to, to hold together a uh, or put, pull back together a solar panel that it teared. And so if I remember, yeah, so that one they had to use the OBSS to get that extra reach um, to be able to reach there. And so uh, you figure that'd be a helpful thing to have, especially since, you know, we've gone and built these OBSSs. And uh, prior to this uh, STS-134, we had done this before. We had stowed it on board the, uh, the space station. And so it was temporarily stored on orbit by the STS-123 crew back in 2008. The issue was STS-123 was bringing the uh, uh, the smaller part of the Kibo uh, Japanese uh, module. And if you ever look at uh, Kibo, you see it's got that um, on the Zenith side, it's got a little storage unit there called the ELM ELMPS. And that little storage unit sits on top of the, the main module of Kibo. And they actually brought that to station first. And since there was no rest of Kibo to put it on, they put it on the Zenith port of Node 2 to, to wait there. Now, Kibo was gigantic. Um, it was, I, I think, the biggest uh, space station um, uh, payload. Uh, I mean, it, while the trusses are quite large, I think it actually beats them out, if not in terms of uh, mass, maybe volume, or both. Uh, but in any event, Kibo, uh, the, the bulk uh, ELMPM, the, the main pressurized module of Kibo, was too big for the OBSS to fit in the payload bay along with it. And so as a result, when 123 came up, they left an OBSS. This was also um, Endeavor. So that makes Endeavor the one that's handed over the OBSS to station twice. They basically left it on orbit. And then when 124, STS-124 came uh, to drop off the large pressurized module of Kibo, it then picked up the OBSS and returned back home. That was a discovery flight. Yeah. So uh, as part of this EVA-4, which took place on flight day 12, they went and they handed over the OBSS uh, from the shuttle arm to the uh, station arm. And the station arm had to grab it in the middle of the, uh, the OBSS, uh, the baton. And, and that's because uh, in the middle, it had a, uh, a flight-releasable grapple fixture. And so this is one that doesn't have anything to do with uh, uh, power or anything like that. It's what's on Dragon uh, capsules and Cygnus capsules, etc., uh, for just having the station go and grab you. And it basically, it was doing this uh, this handover while, I thought this was neat, while uh, Fink and Shamatov were still like in the airlock getting ready. Uh, they had like just switched on their batteries afterwards. And so they go and they climb over to the S1 truss, which is ultimately where it was going to be stored. And they sit underneath it while they kind of, the station arm brings it you know, closer and closer to them. And then, you know, eventually they kind of get out of the way and they let them uh, hover the arm just above the the spacewalkers. And then I forget which, I think it was uh, Shamatov uh, had a, um, or it could have been Fink, I, I'm not sure, uh, had a, uh, a little grappling uh, mechanism that was essentially, it looks like a pair of tongs almost. And so it would grab them, he would use these tongs to grab the, the baton while also using a, a, a ballerina grab um, with his, his own hand to kind of hold it and then eventually uh, tie it down into place. And then they, yeah, they had it installed. And at that point, uh, you now had the uh, baton passed uh, successfully uh, over to the station. But that wasn't the end of it because there was actually an interesting uh, issue that they had to uh, address, which is that the shuttle, its arm was compatible with uh, electric electrical flight grapple fixtures or EFGFs. 
there's going to be a lot of grapple fixture terminology thrown at you now, so feel free to pause as, ne as needed. So this, these electrical flight grapple fixtures are not compatible, though, with the space station arm. That wouldn't work for the space station arm being able to use it potentially in the future. So what ended up happening to, to finish out the rest of the EVA, or at least this part of the EVA that was related to the OBSS, is that uh, Fink and Shamatov then had to go from S1 all the way over to the P6 truss, so port 6. So that's way down at the end, where there was a power and data grapple fixture, which is space station arm compatible. And so they went and they grabbed that, and they brought it back to the arm, and they removed the electrical flight fixture, and they put the power and data fixture on instead, and, you know, installed it, and voila, you now had a nice uh, space station compatible OBSS, which at this point, uh, we could now call the Enhanced ISS Boom Assembly, which is its new name to this day. Yeah, so I was confused because when you said that Station didn't have compatibility with the electrical flight grapple fixture, I was like, well, they do, but it's not that. That's a different system than the power data fixture? Yeah, the power and data grapple fixture is, um, I guess, the one where you want power to go through, whereas the flight releasable grapple fixture is just if you want it to be able to grab things. So the arm can't, station's arm can't grab Dragon and like supply power data to Dragon, I guess, is the, is the way to think of it. Right. So basically, it's like two different types of electrical connections. And one was like a power data. And then one then the one on the shuttle was just, you know, the electrical flight gravel fixture. And then there's also the FRGF, which is the flight releasable one, which doesn't have any of that. Right. right. So there's so there's basically three different types of connections, right? There's a yeah, there's a there's a surprising number of them. But there's three ones that are relevant to this story. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so yeah, there's this kind of interesting incompatibility, which I guess makes sense since the shuttles were all built in, you know, the 70s and 80s, but the, yeah. the electrical flight grapple fixture did supply power, you know, because that's how, you know, the shuttle needed to control the arm once it was, you know, or would need to control things when the arm would grab them. But it was still incompatible with the space station's arm, I guess. And so you had this weird setup. <laughs> and, and can I give a shout out to Colin, I think, uh, back relating to how they had to pass off the OBSS earlier on those uh, STS-123 and 120. Uh, four missions to be able to get Kibo there. That it, it, it very much was a, a wolf duck grain type puzzle where you had <laughs> arms and modules and two missions to be able to go and swap things in a particular mm -hmm. choreographed way, which <laughs> is very cool how they were able to do that kind of stuff. So that's the baton. Um, uh, just uh, uh, real quick though, uh, kind of uh, I buried this that this was also the final space shuttle EVA ever. Oh really? And so later in the in the EVA, uh, Shamatov was on the end of uh, the arm, um, the shuttle arm, and while riding it, he took a nice picture of the you know space station from above, um, which was a nice send off. But yeah, after that, it was all the 135 didn't have uh, an EVA, and since then, it's been shuttle EVA or sorry, it's been station EVAs, I guess. Yeah, so I guess they you know dropped off the boom and said, well, we won't be needing this anymore. And they just kind of like <laughs> left it there. Yeah. I mean, I guess they could have taken it back with them, but you know, like here, you hold on to this. And, 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 and this image I just put in the discord, I love this view. Um, you can just see it kind of, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, off on the starboard side, uh, just sitting there, uh, a little towards the top of the truss. And so I want to, I want to give a homework assignment to everyone listening right now. Next time you see a, a picture of the ISS, um, like a, a recent-ish picture, uh, keep an eye out for the OBSS because it is still stowed to this day and they haven't had to use it because there hasn't been any 
issues that were out of reach of the main arm. But, you know, at some point, it's kind of just sitting there waiting to, to do its job. And one last thing I thought that's pretty interesting is that, uh, right, these, these sensors on board, you might be asking, uh, do they still work? Could, like, the station do this kind of high-res imaging of different parts of itself, potentially, without having to go out there? But no, they uh, decay and or the, the sensors are decaying and are now just dead and don't work. And so it solely exists to basically give you that extra 50 feet and not to kind of do any more inspections. So sweet dreams, you three wonderful sensors that did a good job keeping our astronauts safe. Now it's just a big stick. <laughs> now, it's a, <laughs> now it is just a big stick. <laughs> cool. Yeah. So that's a good twist. If I'm surprised I didn't get the clue immediately, but uh, I suspect <laughs> the clue for next week might be a little bit harder. Since Ben's not here, did you want to set me up for that? <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, uh, speaking of uh, challenging clues for next week, next week is the 23rd to the 29th of May. Do you have a clue for us? So the, the challenging clue for next week is in 2016, Hex 1 of 5. Hex 1 of 5. Yeah. Somewhat cryptic. And, uh, you know, uh, the challenge has been put out there. So if you think you know what... Uh, event this clue is referencing, uh, please shoot us an email or leave us a clue in our Discord under the This Week SF channel. And good luck. Good luck. All right, let's just move on to upcoming spaceflight events. And thank you to Launch Library 2, where we start our research each week. And we have six launches, uh, four of which are Falcon 9s. So <laughs> what's All the right. first one, Dennis? Well, leading us off in the, uh, the flight of the Falcons is a Falcon 9 Block 5 that'll be taking Starlink Group 6-3 to Leo. And this one has a launch window has a launch window on May 19th from 0400 to 0820 UTC and this one is flying out of the Cape at Slick 40. After that we have another Falcon 9 uh, block 5 and that's with Iridium 9 and OneWeb 19 and these are five spare satellites for the Iridium Next constellation and 16 satellites for OneWeb. And that one will be launching from Vandenberg, however, from Space Launch Complex 4E. And the time for that uh, is, again, on the 19th from 1218 UTC through 1411 UTC. So good four hours there. Mm. Let's see if I maybe can see that launch from, from town. And then on another Falcon 9 Block 5, this one snuck up on me, but this is Axiom Mission 2. Axiom Space Mission 2. So really cool. It's a Crew Dragon flight that's going to be uh, Peggy Whitson taking three commercial astronauts to orbit. And they'll be staying on the space station for at least eight days. And if it's anything like the previous uh, Axiom mission, uh, they'll be working, but hopefully not working too hard um, because I think they were overworked <laughs> that last time, or at least we're struggling to try to keep up. But um, I do like that, you know, people go up there and want to actually, you know, not just stare at the window all day. In any event, this uh, one is slated for Sunday, March 21st with an instantaneous uh, launch at 2137 UTC. And this one is out of the Cape, but at Launch Complex 39A. And because it is a, uh, it's an ISS mission, there will be coverage of the launch from on NASA TV, as well as on Monday, May 22nd, the next day, uh, coverage of the rendezvous and docking So uh, on NASA TV. And so the coverage uh, of that begins at 7.30 a.m. with the docking scheduled for 09.24 a.m. Uh, both are Eastern Daylight Time. And uh, it will continue uh, through the hatch opening at 11.13 a.m. Eastern, and then the crew's welcoming remarks at 11.45 a.m. Then after that, we're going back to the Cape, back to Slick 40 for another Falcon 9 Block 5, <laughs> and this one's launching BADR-8. 
So that's a satellite. Uh, it's a geostationary communication satellite. I'm not too familiar with it, but uh, based on the Eurostar Neo platform, it says uh, for Arabsat. So this is, um, like I said, launching from Slick 40. Uh, the time for that looks to be at 0320 UTC on the 22nd. Okay, so no more Falcons. Uh, next up, we've got an exciting uh, South Korean rocket, uh, the Nuri rocket. And so this is... Uh, uh, after uh, its first attempt in uh, October 2021, that was uh, unfortunately a failure. It didn't reach orbit. Uh, it did have a successful flight uh, in June of 2022. And so now this one is slated for Wednesday, May 24th. And this uh, rocket will be carrying the next Sat 2 as well as Snipe A through D satellites. Uh, those are four CubeSats. Um, and there are another uh, few satellites uh, hitching a ride as well. And uh, they'll be going to sun-synchronous orbit again Wednesday, May 24th, with a uh, window from 0854 to 0954. And this is launching out of the Naro Space Center in South Korea uh, at LC2. And then finally, on the 24th, we have a Soyuz 2.1A, and that's a Roscosmos, obviously. The payload is Progress MS-23, or 84P. That's the other designation. And that's a resupply mission to the International Space Station. Um, so yeah. That's launching from the Baikonur Cosmodrome. Uh, 31-6 is the launch site. I'm not too sure what that means, but that's uh, that's the... I guess that's the name of the launch site. And uh, like I said, launching on the 24th at 1256 and 6 seconds UTC. So that's your exact liftoff time. So there is coverage of this on NASA TV. The coverage begins at 830, and that's Eastern time, uh, and that's 830 in the morning. Um, the launch itself is scheduled for 856 Eastern time, and then the docking coverage begins at uh, 1130, so a couple hours later. So yeah, you can actually watch that on NASA TV. So those are your upcoming spaceflight events. Which means then it is time to deal with the show, and we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to Colin, Jonesy, Mike, Chubby, Delta V with a space, Leon Running Man, and Delta V. No space. For joining our reporting session today and helping us make correction burns on the fly. And if you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit the orbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. And thank you to MSA Design for leaving a positive review on our iTunes. Uh, I forget that that even exists. <laughs> so appreciate that. Thank you. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcasts on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. So that's it. We will see you all next week on Orbit. Until then, later. See you.